Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Most better run strip centers, you require sales from these tenants. So if I'm going to tie up your shopping center... The first thing I'm going to want to see is the rent roll and the leases. And then I want to see what are the sales of these tenants. If they all have good sales, then you're okay. Yeah, those work really well. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, John McNellis. John McNellis is joining us from Palo Alto, California. He is the principal at McNellis Partners, a commercial development firm. John has been on our podcast a number of times before. If you Google Joe Fairless and John McNellis, his episodes will pop up and best ever listeners, I encourage you to listen to them. John has an open invite to come back anytime and we have great conversations. John's portfolio consists of 80 plus projects of development over the years, primarily shopping centers, also office, residential. John, thank you so much for coming back and how are you? Gosh, it's my pleasure. I'm great. Good. As we were joking beforehand, my voice is a little froggy from, let's say, too much Christmas party last night. 
a funny story. Whenever I have the day after voice, I always record my voicemail greeting because it makes my voice sound deeper than it normally is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, John, before we get started, sure. can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. Like Osh said, I started in shopping centers. We built our first shopping center. And by shopping centers, I mean neighborhood supermarket anchored centers, 10 to 20 acres, essentially convenience or, or essential properties. We've been doing those for 40 years. And we branched out from that to mixed use, as almost everybody in retail had to do. We also do a little bit of office, suburban office, which and our office buildings are located here in Palo Alto. Our retail portfolio is almost exclusively within a two-hour drive of, say, San Francisco. And we do a little bit of high-end residential. In California, everything's high-end, but we do, with one partner, duplexes, triplexes here in the Silicon Valley. And doing it for 40 years, we sell two out of three properties because we don't have outside financial partners. So the sale of the one property will lead to buying, say, two others. And we trade when we can. And life's good. <laughs> John, so I know the question the best ever listeners are wondering, why sure. don't you raise capital? Because that seems to be a sport these days, raising cheap money for deals. Yeah, you didn't mention the book, so I'll, I'll plug it myself. But in Making It in Real Estate, a book that I wrote five, six years ago, and it's come and then expand, doubled it in size a couple of years ago. I covered that. In fact, I gave a talk, which is on YouTube. It's called No Partners, No Problems. I started out with no money, of course, and we had an older partner. We started with big financial uh, institutions, savings and loans, venture funds in the 80s. But then gradually, I came around to the belief that I'd rather own 100% of a million-dollar deal, call it a McDonald's or a post office or something, than 5% of a $50 million deal or 1% of a $100 million deal and have all of that complication. You don't control your life when you have big financial partners. They can sell when they want to, when you don't want to, but it's a lifestyle choice. I have friends who are really successful who have these huge, let's say, the Ohio State Teachers Pension Fund or the Yale Pension Fund, and they go out and they buy 100 properties and they spend billions. It's not for me. I like having a small company, properties that we own and control 100%. Yeah, and as we endure these economic headwinds, a lot of syndicators that maybe didn't anticipate this 7% interest rate hike. Here we are, early December of 2022. 7% is what interest rates are. They had floating debt, not locked in. They have to answer to their investors, whereas you have the liberty of absorbing things that come unforeseen potentially. So I totally get that. Right. In a hot market, it's not that we seem stupid, but maybe we seem a little timid because we look at the numbers and we say, these don't work at all. And I remember there was one time a broker said, hey, John, we have this great shopping center. You ought to bid on it. And I can't, I forget the number, but I went out and looked at it because it wasn't a bad center. And I said, yeah, I will bid 18 million for it. And then he kind of hemmed and hawed and he said, please don't make that offer. You're just going to insult the seller and it's going to sell for millions more. So in a real up market, we sometimes end up sitting on our hands we seem a lot smarter in a down market like today where we've got plenty of dry powder. And I've noticed over the last 40 years and four or five big recessions that we end up doing pretty well. 
which is why I think it's a brilliant time to buy right now if you can find a good property. John, let's dive into that. You've got 40 years of experience. You're one of the legends in this industry. You've seen... <laughs> listen, legend is a synonym for old guy retired, but okay. <laughs> you're one of the OGs. You're one of the godfathers. I'm not helping my case here, but you've seen market cycles and you know this industry better than just about anybody. What are you seeing today in terms of deals? I'm not going to really ask for a prediction on the future, but give us your thoughts on what's going on today. So we are, my friends, my competitors, my associates, everybody's out there looking for deals because I think everyone has a sense now's a good time to go on the hunt. We're in the dry season and, and, and all of the animals need to get to the water hole, right? But no one yet has seen these good deals. And I think the reason why is most of the better assets that you want to buy are held by fairly strong owners. They have deep pockets. In the recession in the early 90s, that was different. A lot of sellers were smaller, kind of cowboy-type developers, and they coughed up a lot of properties for pennies on the dollar. So far, we haven't seen that yet. I think we will. This is, I believe, very much that 23 is going to be a challenging year for real estate. People do. So anybody, let's say us, we just say, gee, we're not going to sell. We don't need to. We have a very low debt-to-value ratio. But death, divorce disaster, dissolution, those things happen regardless of the market cycles, right? So somebody dies, the heirs are going to sell, they need to sell. So there will be some deals out there. So if I were really young and aggressive, I'd be out there pounding the pavement right now, trying to find deals. John, let's start with office. Class A office space, when the pandemic hit, you started seeing a lot of for lease signs. Then you started seeing for lease or for sale then it was just for sale signs. And now you see auction signs and they're trading right below break even from what I'm seeing. So if you buy one of these office buildings, class A, that's maybe 20, 30% occupied, you're not breaking even on it. And we're waiting until it hits that break even number, pick up distressed assets. We have two different types of office. We have the metropolitan class A office, and then we have suburban office. Can we get your thoughts on both? Okay. I like suburban office better. <laughs> we own suburban office here in Palo Alto. We have four office buildings in downtown. Office is tricky right now. That's the big question, kind of overhanging real estate. We're primarily retail. And in retail, I think you know, Ash has been out of favor since maybe 2005, 2006. So we've been in the hinterlands. It took the office market collapse to move us up at least one notch in the standings. Right now, I don't know what you're seeing, but here on the West Coast and in particularly San Francisco and the Bay Area, the office market is dead. It's hibernating. The bid spread is so large that the sellers have pulled everything off the market. So stuff that let's say was trading, these are big numbers, seven, eight hundred dollars a foot before the pandemic. Now they're hoping to get two fifty and so people aren't selling. I think the CBD, the, the central business district office buildings, particularly here, are, are worse. They're larger. There's no easy way to retool those in case the office market doesn't come back. And that's really the question. In fact, I write an essay every month for the San Francisco Business Times. And the last one was about you know offices. And 
So the, the kind of quiet undercurrent in real estate thinking is these massive tech layoffs here on the West Coast, and there have been more than 100,000 tech employees laid off, will lead to a buyer's market of tech talent. And then the companies, which is for the most part, I understand, want their employees to come back. The whole, how efficient are we? So the thought is that this mini dot-com explosion will let the employers force the employees back, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. The tech guys in particular are just entrenched about not coming back. So if you buy something for 20 cents on the dollar, it seems like a crazy good deal until it drops to 15 cents on the dollar. You just lost 25% of your money. So that's the question. Until we can figure out how much of these buildings are going to be utilized, office is really tricky. I like smaller suburban buildings because, A, you can sell them to a user if you have to. B, if you're running a company in these difficult times, you might prefer to have a 10,000-foot building all to yourself than have 10,000 feet of floor, in, let's say, on a 40,000-foot footprint of a 400,000-foot building. Easier to control all the, this virus stuff and everything else. Yeah, John, in your last essay, you also talked about the open workspaces versus having enclosed <laughs> offices. Can you dive into that a little bit? Sure. So I've been trashing WeWork. <laughs> I might have been the very first one to trash WeWork years ago <laughs> saying, I don't get it. And it's not just WeWork. It's this whole idea that we are more efficient if we work like at picnic tables side by side. And at least two of our buildings have that open space, the way that we have tech tenants and they've built that out. That always made no sense to me. How can you concentrate whatever it is, writing letters, writing code with people next to you. And so everybody's wearing headsets and, and, and it looks like they're on a, a subway car. So I walked by one of our buildings. I saw this tech guy going in and I said, hey, this, my building's almost always empty. What's up? And he says, well, we're 5% at best occupied, even though they leased the whole building. And to cut it short, I said, well, what's it going to take to get you guys back? And he said, well, man, it's too noisy in here. We figured out that it's quieter and we're more productive at home. And he says, we need little small spaces that one or two of us can congregate in and not hear everything. So I said, oh, like offices? <laughs> I said, exactly what your company tore out when they took my building. But yeah, private offices, I think, would go a long way toward getting people back. But I'm not sure that the real estate market has embraced that. And just to be slightly cynical about it, one of the reasons that our world, real estate, embraced this open space thing is you could charge more rent. Traditionally, when I was a kid, you'd figure four people per thousand feet. Then when you start doing the co-working, we work kind of thing, you could get two people per thousand feet. So the tenants say, okay, this is good for us. You know, we can jam more people in and it's good. For, and then we'll pay a little more rent. So it worked well, I think, for the landlords and for the employers, but what do you know? Big surprise, not for the employees. And so now I think you've got to get it back at least half the way to where it was before, before the employees want to come back. And a lot of them don't want to come back ever. What a great observation. Listen, I get it. It's much more convenient to work from home, but I think it comes down to, like you mentioned, the productivity. Look, the rare times that I actually go out to lunch, if we sit outside at a cafe or something, you look around and the number of people that are drinking around noon, one o'clock <laughs> has never been seen before. And these are all people that are working from home. 
I mean, when it's a nice day out, everyone's got a beer at their table and they're taking two, three hour lunches. Pre-COVID, you never would have seen that. So I question the productivity metrics. Golf let's touch on something that's interesting because I was talking to my doctor of all things and she asked me, how's business? And, and we had more or less this conversation. This is just yesterday. And she said, you know, her pediatrician friends are dealing with not only flus and cuts and scrapes and broken bones, but they're dealing with the mental health of, of these little kids who've been cooped up alone for a couple of years on the one hand. And then she said, and then her, I think they're called gerontologists, the, the people who deal with the really old. She said that the memory unit at Stanford Hospital, you can't get into an interview there for eight months because she called it a gray tsunami of cognitive decline of all these people who've been not having their regular life. So she said, they're very young and they're very old. She said, how is it likely that the middle, let's say the 21 to 60 year olds, those 40 years, how likely do you think it is that they're not going to suffer mentally from being isolated? I said, wow, that's a good point. Anyway, (laughs) office. Yeah, you would think post-isolation, you'd want to congregate back in the office. I guess it's personality type as well. The introverts probably love staying at home. Me as an extreme extrovert, I need to be around people. Yeah. But in terms of what we're seeing in office, a lot of these giant office parks and individual buildings I'm seeing go to auction and they're still getting a pretty high dollar, at least out here in the Midwest. People are overpaying, but our numbers are nothing like what you're seeing. We're talking around a hundred bucks a square foot for really nice office space. And you touched on retail and how we've always gotten a bad rap, the retail apocalypse, the Amazon effect. CBRE just released that retail vacancy is the lowest they've seen since they started tracking that metric in 2005. So I think retail is very healthy. Let's dive into that. Boots on the ground. We've got 30 odd property. (laughs) We've had a phenomenal leasing year. So you may recall a couple of years ago, again, our center's called 100,000 feet, 50,000 foot supermarket, a couple of drive-through pads, a bank, classic convenience shopping, pizza, and so on. During COVID, during the worst, during 2020, 70% of our tenants did better than supermarkets, gas stations, drive-throughs primarily. The touch tenants, they're the ones that were killed. Hair, nails, barbershops, massage, all of those. We lost a lot of those tenants. They were shut down. This year, we have been on a leasing rampage. We had the luxury. This doesn't happen very often, but one of our centers was fully leased, finally. And we had a tenant that was what we call an attractive nuisance. It was a cigarette store that was kind of attracting homeless because you can buy individual cigarettes and individual little bottles of booze and so on. So we kicked him out and we just said, enough is enough. So we had that luxury and then we turned around and leased that space immediately. So again, retail is like the word cancer. There are hundreds of kinds of cancers. There's at least seven, eight different kinds of retail, but our specific niche, neighborhood convenience centers, I think across the country is doing better. And you touched on it. I think I first heard in 1998 that we were dinosaurs and that people were never going to go to the supermarket anymore. And it was all going to be home delivery stuff that went away with the dot-com explosion. And then of course it's come back in recent years with Amazon, but the numbers show different e-commerce is tailing off finally. And then bricks and mortar is coming back. So I think that we've just about hit an equilibrium there. 
there's a lot of stuff that we can buy online books. There's a lot of stuff that we're not going to close. Buying online doesn't really work all that well. Food for most of us, the vast, vast majority are still going to go. And you can't buy a pizza online. So I'm pretty happy with our portfolio. Yeah. And Gen Z is actually going to stores and they're going to malls. Yeah. They're undoing the damage from the millennials. Well, it's back to this working at home isolation thing. So here in downtown Palo Alto, we don't have the daytime population. Our buildings are not occupied by workers, but at night, the place is going off like a bottle rocket because all those guys who've been at home all day are coming downtown to mingle and, and get what we need from friends and family and others and just get that vibrancy and that vitality. John, the building that you mentioned where the tech workers said they're 5% back in the office, how yeah. much longer do they have on that lease? Oh, thankfully, it's at least six, seven years. Okay. So, all right. Otherwise, you'd be in a bit of a panic. Yes. Well, interesting. You see this all the time. There's always a high-low split. So ours is a good building at a good location. I just checked with a couple of the top leasing brokers on this yesterday. The high end is doing pretty well. And this is true in San Francisco as well. The fanciest building in town is Salesforce Tower, the one that just dominates. They're at least holding up and its occupancy is good. And I think the bottom is okay too, but it's the middle stuff, the fungible office buildings that don't have any sex appeal they're crushed. And in fact, I asked yesterday, I said, what about you know, well-located but class B office? I asked three different brokers this because there's a business reason to do so. And they said rents were off 25 to 50%, depending on how pessimistic the guy was. So you need either an attractive building or a building that offers an experience and location is not enough, it seems. Is that right? Location goes a long way. If you're in a cool neighborhood, you basically... The employer is saying to himself, and I'm on the tenant side as well. I'm, I'm an investor or have been in some tech companies. So I kind of see it from the tenant side. You want something that's fun for your employees. You want them to say, no, I don't want to go out to that stupid office park five miles outside of town where there's only a, a food truck. There are no amenities. I think being in a cool downtown where there's a lot of stuff going on, I think that helps. I think that location helps a lot. Yeah. And you mean suburban downtown? Or urban, if it works. Okay. Right now, San Francisco's not working. That's one of the beauties of real estate. It's such a local business. You can have it one block being totally vibrant and then two blocks over dead. It's very specific business. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets will be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. John, I'm going to use this phrase, you people, and I'm referring to California investors. You people have always banked on appreciation. 
whether it's residential, commercial, is there any end to that in California or maybe Palo Alto specifically, San Fran, some of the big metros? Well, I'm sure there is that some autumn leaves must fall, as they say, but I don't think in the near term. What California, San Francisco is going through a crisis. It's a combination of being too tech heavy, the politics too progressive, letting the homeless situation get out of hand. But California, we're in a drought, admittedly, but we have so much to offer here. Two of the finest universities in the world, Stanford is a half a mile from where I'm sitting, and then I'll say three, a UCSF, University of San Francisco, and Berkeley. So we have these, and I know we in real estate like to think of ourselves as the leaders of industry, but we're not really. We're like the service providers. We're the guys who sell the picks and shovels or the tents to the gold miners and rushing to the gold fields. And what California has, and particularly Silicon Valley, is one big company after another keeps getting developed here. And we have the weather and we have this great natural beauty. Can California ruin it? Of course, but I'm still optimistic about California. I have had wealthy friends leave. They said, screw it. The politics are, are too difficult. There's too much regulation. And we don't want to pay the 13% income tax. But I think that's on the margin. I think we'll be fine. So I'm bullish. But I still buy in California all day long. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> now California's got a surplus, right? They're no longer operating at a deficit. Yeah. Well, they will figure a way to blow that. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be back to a deficit in no time. John, not only in this conversation, but in past conversations, you've mentioned your love of grocery anchored strip centers. Yes. Why are you so enamored by grocery anchored as opposed to, let's say, a Dollar Tree anchored? Well, the Dollar Tree, that's kind of a grocery store as well. What I like about grocery stores is you go once or twice a week. If you go to a big box center, let's say it's all soft and hard goods, a Best Buy, say, or Dick's Sporting Goods. You're going to go to a sporting goods store maybe two or three times a year, right? Right. Uh, You're going to go to your supermarket twice a week. So if I'm trying to fill up the shop space, having that vibrancy, I've got to go to Safeway. Oops, oh, there's a pizza. I can go pick that up or I can get my nails done. I just like the foot traffic. It's just really worked well for us. And you've got to eat as inflation kicks in. Nobody loses weight. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody loses weight in a recession. You may have to give up champagne and caviar and you may slip down to rice, but people still are going to eat and they're still going to avail themselves of the life's small pleasures. The manicures don't cost that much. A pizza doesn't cost that much. And then banks. Everyone said banks were dead. We're all going to go crypto or whatever, but I think banks are fun. Anyway, no, I really do like convenience centers and they're holding up. And people were not buying retail so much for capital appreciation. They were buying it for cash flow. And I remember the last big recession in 2009, a good friend of mine from South Carolina, values, if you recall, values collapsed about 40% in commercial real estate in the Great Recession. And he says to me, John, my net worth's gone down by half, but my cash flow's the same. Son of a that's right. Our values are dropping, but it's like you're holding a bond. As long as you're not selling it, you're still getting the return. And our properties, we tend to have the top centers in in these good suburban towns. So they tend to hold up pretty well. So yeah, I'm a great believer in neighborhood convenience retail. Allow me to play devil's advocate. So if you have a grocery anchored strip center 
and that grocer goes dark. Now, all of your other tenants are suffering because that anchor is no longer bringing in traffic. So how do you mitigate that risk? How do you evaluate the health of that grocer? Let's say they have maybe two years left on their lease. They're not willing to tell you their numbers. They're not willing to engage in lease renewal talks. Do you roll the dice? How do you evaluate that? Excellent questions. Retail, first of all, if you devote your career to retail, which we have done, and you join the ICSC and you befriend the the supermarkets. So if you said, hey, John, here's the shopping center and it's anchored by Albertson, say, or, or somebody else, what I would do, I could call and say, how are you guys doing? And off the record, they'd say, oh, our sales are great or our sales are not. So you really do need to get the sales because you touched on it, Ash. Brilliant way to go broke, and people do, is to buy a shopping center and have the supermarket go dark. So apartments, you can buy one or you can buy two and and you'll be fine. But retail is more of an insider's game. So why is the guy selling the shopping center? Does he know, even though he doesn't get the sales reported, does he know that the sales are terrible? Or it can go the other way. The sales can be so good that the market says, oh my God, we're doing $1,000 a foot in 30,000 feet. We are ripe to get knocked off by a competitor. So we're going to close Dasha's little store and we're going to build a new one down the block. So I would be very, very careful buying a a shopping center. If if I didn't know what was going on and there are only two years left and I didn't have a brilliant exit strategy, Put it this way, if I weren't going to uncork the champagne if they moved out because their rent's so low and I know that I could put in Dick's Sporting Goods or something like that, I wouldn't buy it. And it's all about sales per foot. And it's all about competition. And it's all about who can come in and kill your supermarket. I think I mentioned earlier, we've sold two out of three of our centers. And where we sell invariably is where there are very limited bounds where the competition is wide open to kind of make it a bigger point of it. Houston, where there's no zoning. If you build a brand new shopping center there, it looks great. The next day, another guy can across the street, build a prettier, bigger, better center. California, the regulations here are a real pain in the ass, but they do end up creating kind of a moat around you. If you're in a, if you have a center in a good town where there's not much competition coming in, you can kind of count on the fact that you'll be all right. John, that's a hell of a curveball you threw at us by answering my question. So you want to ensure the health of your anchor, your grocer. Right. But there's also the problem where if they're, they're, if they're doing well and they want to expand, right. they'll also leave. What a challenge. Yeah. It ain't easy getting rich. <laughs> <laughs> it, this, this, it's tricky stuff. Particularly if, listeners, if you're thinking of buying your first shopping center with a supermarket, you really need to figure out how well that market's doing. Or again, you need to say, gosh, they're paying a dollar a foot a month in a $3 a foot a month environment. So if they move out, we'll declare it a miracle. And that sometimes happens as well. You buy an old center with old rents and a clever guy like you, you can retool it. But one problem is that Almost no other user generates that two times a week foot traffic. Ideally, you replace a crappy old market at low rent with a better market at a higher rent. And a lot of times, I don't know what you're seeing in the Midwest, but we're replacing older markets with ethnic markets. 
Asian, Hispanic. We actually have what we used to call a Russian market. As of the beginning of this year, suddenly it became a, a more, oh, I don't know, Ukrainian market, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Russian speaking. But those come in. You can do that, but you really need to have an exit strategy or be really certain that that market is doing well, but not too well. John, two questions. I know multifamily is not your bread and butter. What are your thoughts on the current state of multifamily? Again, all I really know about is here in California. So sorry about that. We have, because of our housing shortage, essentially an infinite demand. So the difference between multifamily and and all of the other real estate disciplines is you can clear it. You can get yourself to 100% occupancy here in California, if you just lower your rents to the right level, there's enough demand. That said, rents are down, costs are up so high. So my friends who build multifamily are not as sanguine as they've been. And a lot of deals are kind of on hold right now. Here, entitlements can take one, two, three, five years. Be a good time to be entitling multifamily, where you really get lucky and you hit it, is if you are ready to hit the ground exactly when the market turns. So right now, let's say 23 is going to be a difficult year. You get it all entitled and you have the, they call it intestinal fortitude to start construction. If you can open your new building at just the time when the next spring comes along, you really hit it. But tricky to do. And for the best ever listeners that may not know this, entitling means what? So you start with raw land, or let's say you start with an old shopping center that is no longer vibrant. You need to scrape the whole thing. So by entitling, I mean going to the city, and if you need to get it rezoned from retail to residential, or if you need to get it upzoned from single-family residential, and by upzone creating greater density, getting it upzoned to multifamily, or getting through all of the discretionary approvals. And and there are a a bunch of hoops here. And then through the architectural review, through the planning commission, through the city council, getting it to the point where you can get your building permit and start work. So those are what we call essentially the entitlements from the time you first see the dirt until the time you get your building permit. Thank you. John, for multifamily investors, that maybe want to pivot into retail or newer investors that want to get into retail, what would your advice be? How do they get started? What type of assets should they look for? Okay. What I would suggest is if you want to do it full time, if you say, wow, McNellis inspired me. I want to devote my career to retail. I would find a retail company and go work for them and make your initial mistakes. And Lord knows we made a ton of them. I'd make that on someone else's dime and learn from them. It's kind of like the hotel industry. It's real estate, but it's also more than real estate. Again, the beauty of retail, as opposed to, say, residential or industrial or office, is that you deal with the same people over and over again. The real estate representatives for the retailers, their most valuable asset is their geographic knowledge. Nobody can have too broad an area. So, what you find is that it's true over the course of my career, somebody that starts at Starbucks here in the Bay Area, if they leave, they go to McDonald's or they go to Albertsons. So you develop these long-term relationships, which then solves the problem that you raised of how do I find out whether this center is any good? You have friendships, which are great, and you develop those through the ICSC. So if I wanted to get into retail today, 
I would join the ICSC. I would go to all the local meetings I could and maybe go to Las Vegas, which is kind of fun. And then I would try to work with another company. Short of that, I would start on little pad deals. Guys can start on gas stations. They can start on McDonald's, not so little. And just kind of work your way up. The same way that you do in multifamily, you start with a single family house or a duplex and then work your way up. Try to go out and develop a 100,000 foot shopping center as my first effort in retail. That's a little tricky. John, what about buying that smaller, maybe 10, 20,000 square foot mom and pop strip mall with the barbershop, the pizza place, the dog Uh, groomer? Yeah, those are fine. Again, the two magic words for success in real estate, supply constraint. (laughs) So if you have a little strip center in an area that's totally built out and it's all residential and no one's going to come in there. And again, most better run strip centers, you require sales from these tenants. So if I'm going to tie up your shopping center, the first thing I'm going to want to see is the rent roll and the leases. And then I want to see what are the sales of these tenants. If they all have good sales, then you're okay. Yeah, those work really well. They're not as safe as a well-located supermarket anchored center, but they're fine. Again, it's a different niche from what we work in, but you can do really well with those. Yeah, John, I'm going to ask you this question, but I'm going to change it up a little bit. You've answered this question a number of times on other episodes. What is your best ever real estate investing advice? Today, I'm going to add, what is your best ever real estate investing advice in today's market? Well, let's just stick with different answer, different day. Look where there are supply constraints. And by that, Geography works really well. You're in a small town with mountains all around, so you can't build any more freeways. It doesn't have to be in a larger city. It's just the particular area where the supply needs to be constrained. People don't like to cross major roads. So if you can find it on the one side of where you want to develop and and there are supply constraints, I, I would go with. The other part of it is I would pick for sure. This can be tricky. If you're in a community that isn't growing, develop and your parents live there and your friends and family live there, live there, but develop somewhere else. You really need to be in a growth market. And there's all kinds of research data you can get. I think Marcus and Millichap publishes stuff like that. What are the longer term economic prospects? You want to go to an area where the rising tide is going to float the boats, right? Yep. If it's a static area, and I'm not going to pick on any cities in particular, but if there's no growth, So if I build a new office building, the only way I can fill it up is to pull the tenants from your building. Much harder gig. And I wouldn't do that. So supply constraint and then economic growth. That's my best advice today. And and then today's the day to go do it. Find that good deal and make the seller carry the paper. And (laughs) if if someone's actively selling today, they almost by definition are pretty desperate to sell. John, thank you again for your time. You've been a guest several times. Always love having you on here. Please come back again as you know, let's see what the economy does in the next few months. Would love to have you back. I'm going to plug this book that you wrote, making it in real estate, starting out as a developer, John McNellis. I've bought over a hundred copies of this book and Uh gifted it out. It's my favorite commercial real estate book. I can't thank you enough. John, how can the best ever listeners get a hold of you? LinkedIn seems to be the easiest way. Or they can just write me at johnmcnellis.com. Speaking of plugging books, if you just bear with me for one minute, Ash. So if 
if you had asked the 21-year-old John McNellis, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to be a real estate developer? I'd say, what the hell is that? Didn't even know what that was. What I wanted to be was a, an author, a novelist. So the last couple of years when things were quiet, I wrote a novel. Here it is. It's called O'Brien's Law. What do you know? It's set in 1977. It's about a 25-year-old lawyer who's an idiot in a way. He thinks he's a great lawyer, but he's actually really pretty bad at it. His law firm is trying to fire him. They give him this terrible case, which he thinks is a great case, and he's the laziest guy ever. So rather than do the legal work, he's trying to fall in love. So his love life's getting in the way of his work, and it becomes a murder mystery. Anyway, it's just out in paperback in the last couple of weeks. It's doing pretty well. So if you want to check that out, but I have noticed, folks, don't worry about it, that I notice most business guys, that they don't read anything that doesn't have money involved. They read the journal, Fortune, Forbes maybe, and then they read financial sheets. That is not the key to a happy life. There's a lot more to life than business. Anyway, on that up note, happy holidays, Ash, and I look forward to doing this again. John, thank you so much. And I've heard that from a lot of people. Don't just read things you have to read for fun which read for fun yeah so great advice john thank you again thank, thank you so much you. for your time sure. best ever Bye. listeners thank you so much for joining us if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a five-star review share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it also follow subscribe and have a best ever day